Hey there, how's it going? Welcome to the Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. Both great spiritual teachers and modern-day academics warn us that our craving for distracting ourselves is tanking our happiness, along, of course, with our productivity. But it's also keeping us from becoming who we've always been meant to become. Today, I'll look both at wisdom from medieval monks and from a UCLA business professor, all aiming at the same thing, helping you and me find the lives we're hoping to have as we take our addiction to distraction seriously. And do, by the way, check out our parent website at journey-on.net, journey-on.net. It has a page with all these podcasts, for instance, but also information about online gatherings of people from all over who are trying to grow in and make friends around the sorts of things we talk about on the Pocket Contemplative. All right, let's get going with your media intake is tanking your happiness. A week or so after the 2016 election, I realized that my media intake was both triggering to me and, in its own way, salacious in a way I didn't feel great about. Had something happened which my political opponents were furious about? Click here. My newsfeed has often been a way I distract myself from getting down to the tasks of my day. But that moment offered me another opportunity. In that moment, I felt, for what it's worth, that God offered another suggestion. To quit my newsfeed largely cold turkey. Trust that if there's a major news story I need to know about, it'll find its way to me soon enough. And if I need to pull up something on my phone to read, I could at least in that era make sure it's a book. It didn't seem to matter what sort of book. It could be a deep spiritual book. It could be an airport thriller. It could be whatever. Books, at least, would not be calling me into the sort of gossip and clickbait that I'd been immersing in. The consequence, at the very least, was that I got down to work sooner. But also, I developed at least a somewhat greater ability to inhabit my own life, my own opportunities and relationships. Again, I don't believe there was any major news story I remained ignorant of, so I'm told there was some sort of pandemic, is that right, that many of you may have heard about? But that part of my day fell away. In today's podcast, we're going to start off way back in time, considering the wisdom of medieval monks, that's pretty far back, before zipping forward to the wisdom about overcoming distraction from a UCLA business school professor. But the heart of it will go right back to my newsfeed story. And we'll argue that our big enemy in life is a surprising one, which is distraction, or so the monks tell us. The seven deadly sins, for instance, evidently are not the big seven because they're the bad things in and of themselves, but because they lead to distraction. Lust? Sure, lust is unseemly, but its real problem is that it distracts us, evidently. We're going to look at how these monks, along with thinkers as far back as the Greeks, warn us against my newsfeed choices is very consequential and very negative. Who knew the Greeks would have an insight on my newsfeed? My problem is, they tell me, what they call nosiness, and it will keep me from fulfilling whatever I can offer in life. Well, again, I'm going to start us with looking from this way back in time, from medieval monks, and I'm going to do it through a recent book called The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. That's a very specific title, wouldn't you say? Uh, by a professor, I believe from Georgia, named Jamie Kreiner, or Kreiner, K-R-E-I-N-E-R, The Wandering Mind. And um, she tells us, you're going to be shocked to know, that first off, distraction is in fact bad, in case you were wondering. So she starts off by saying that journalists and scientists tell us that distraction has serious consequences, among them unproductivity, chronic boredom, sleep deprivation, bad grades, weak relationships, car crashes, a lack of personal fulfillment, a loss of civic solidarity. And as we get to this UCLA business professor in a minute, she's going to argue heavily costs us unhappiness. Um, but meanwhile, back to Ms. Kreiner or Dr. Kreiner, the brain cannot multitask, she tells us. It can only shuffle back and forth between tasks and networks, and soon enough it starts underperforming. 
So distraction, you know, just if, we, if you're looking for a reason to not be distracted, it's that it's going to go poorly for you in life if you are. But of course, we're addicted to it. That's also the point being made. And medieval monks were on this. Um, so she tells us that despite medieval monks' understanding of distraction as being common to all human beings, they didn't come to the conclusion that distraction was morally neutral, even though it's a central addiction, they are saying to all of us. They saw themselves instead as obligated to go to war, to fight against distraction. It's the big enemy, which is interesting to me that these monks saw this as the big deal. So she gives us a bunch of four instances. I say these largely because these stories are charming because they're extreme, but just to give you a flavor for these monks, she tells us that Martin, a monk, of course, I have no idea who this is, shared a cave with a snake for three years without letting the snake phase him. Hmm. Kalupa prayed in a cave where snakes often fell on him from the ceiling and wound around his neck, but he didn't flinch either. Landabert stood praying outside until the snow came up to his ankles. But then James, one-upping Landabert, prayed outside for so long that the snow swallowed him entirely and his neighbors had to shovel him out. These people are not distracted. That said, even the experts, we're told, are regularly frustrated by their failure, these monks. A respected monk and teacher named John of Dalyatha, who lived in the 8th century in what's now northern Iraq, once vented in a letter to his brother and fellow monk that he says, all I do is eat, eat sleep, drink, and be negligent. So he keeps... The, the big enemy's distraction, he couldn't beat it because it's an addiction. So if it's such an addiction, it's such a problem, what are we supposed to do? Well, they say, you got to go to war against it. This is war. So Basil told his monks that distraction was at play whenever someone was not trying to please God. And Basil stressed that dealing with distraction was fundamental to all other aspects of his monks' training. We can't succeed in keeping any commandment at all, he told them, if our minds are wandering off in this direction and that. So again, focus, attention, all the sorts of stuff that contemplative spirituality teaches. The reason if you meditate, you might meditate. The reason if you're a mindfulness person, you're mindful. It's all the way to keep present where you are, as if the fundamental urge is not to be where you are, to not be here. And as that happens, all sorts of evils flooded, and these monks thought it really is all sorts of evils. The only way to please God is to go to war against this sort of distraction. Um. A surprising but central enemy goes back to my newsfeed, they teach us, which is nosiness. Nosiness. The essay and philosopher Plutarch wrote a short text in the first century of the Common Era dedicated to the subject on nosiness. Can you believe it? His main objection to nosiness, like that of so many Greek and Latin writers before him, was that it was inappropriate and unproductive. Canvassing for gossip, peeking into people's houses or vehicles, breathlessly chasing the latest news— reading graffiti on your stroll through town about who's best friends with whom. All of this was a way of distracting yourself from more intellectual pursuits and from the responsibility of tending to your own issues. Nosiness enabled people who were already prone to philosophical inertia to stay that way, says Plutarch. But about 300 years later, a monk that we've talked about on this podcast before named John Cassian also pointed to nosiness as a problematic behavior. But he thought it was symptomatic of something even more serious. Cassian concluded that nosiness was a sign of mental instability, more specifically of a condition called ascetia. We mentioned that a few podcasts back. A monk afflicted with ascetia felt simultaneously dissatisfied and incapacitated. Uh, that monk was so unsure about how to change himself or his situation that he resorted to the maladaptive solution of shuffling over to his fellow monks and poking around in their affairs like an obnoxious coworker or neighbor. Well... 
that's kind of my news feed, right? Is it's gossip, right? It's nine tenths of it. And so it's not just the, whatever the big story of the day is. It's 104 articles talking about the story of the day. Who's mad about the story of the day? What's the reaction and that sort of stuff? Nosiness. My kids talk about, they would say, well, I don't know if it's my news feed that draws me in quite so much. It's TikTok or it's social media. And several of them periodically delete those apps from their phones because it sucks them in, right? They're meant to suck you in. That's the whole point of TikTok, et cetera. But I think this would apply to that. It's a sort of voyeurism into another world that is, as these monks would say, Plutarch said, of all people, all those, you know, hundreds and thousand plus years ago said to us, you know, that's the human condition is that we want to distract ourselves from our own lives by poking our, ourselves into other people's business through whatever means we can. And that's so we don't settle into who we actually are. And, and then Cassie and others said, well, that's the devil. The devil's main goal is distraction. I mean, that's kind of interesting. This addiction to distraction we have, that's what the devil's most trying to do, say these monks. The cantankerous abbot Chanute, we are told, who headed an important federation of monasteries of men and women in Upper Egypt for nearly 80 years until his death in 465, once told an audience that Christ had hacked off all the limbs of the devil. So now the devil's thoughts were the most active thing about him. These are kind of interesting. There'll be one more of these, too, about the physical attributes of demons and the devil that these monks or others talk about. In fact, one who's going to talk about the physical attributes of demons is kind of a major figure. And you think, how do you know this exactly? I mean, who, who gave you this information? But the idea that Jesus hacked off the limbs of the devil, like, you know, I'm dating myself back in the day when Monty Python on the Holy Grail and the Black Knight had a similar scene. Um, but so the devil can only act through our thoughts, meaning to distract us. He can't kind of pummel us. He just does that bad thing. Demons were literal opponents, we're told, and sometimes even physical ones, but although violent assaults were part of demons' arsenal, their subtle cognitive work was even more sinister. Something as seemingly innocuous as the urge to take a nap could be a demon, say these monks. This was an argument that Evagrius of Pontus, major figure, made in the 4th century. The bodies of the demons are very cold and like ice, he warned, and so they touch a monk's eyelids and whole head to warm themselves, and in the process make monks drowsy, often when they're trying to read. So demons who are so cold have to physically warm themselves against you and me because they're just so cold. And as they do, they make us cold and drowsy and distracted and we fall asleep. Um, so these monks, in the spirit of what we've been saying, I think saw distraction as at the center, at the heart of the fall of humankind. Distraction, we're told, originally and quasi-genetically, was the result, they say, of humanity's initial separation from God. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and chose instead to focus on themselves, they catalyzed a descent into mental fluctuation and fracture that would afflict the entire species from birth to death. And she talks about how, I mean, um, Ms. Uh, Kreiner, I keep saying Ms. Dr. Kreiner, so forgive me for that, um, mostly talks about just her value in this book that I find is just saying, is flagging the distraction such a big deal to these medieval monks. Central. You know, couldn't be a bigger deal. And she tries to tie it into the modern world, but that begins to kind of waver a bit because she doesn't have that much to say. The the um, professor I'm about to move on to, another professor, um, has more to say about the modern world, although from even then, a kind of a perspectival way. In any case, Dr. Kreiner talks about unplugging as a solution that we have in the modern world to distraction, and she asks, does it work? So she says, today, when we feel helpless against our distractions, we unplug. We announce on our social media accounts, we're staying off social media accounts. We're going to take digital detoxes. We're going to retreat to cabins in the woods. And it's a relief while it lasts. I just took a 
four-day uh, retreat to a cabin in the woods myself, so I can relate. It's a reminder that our minds are still capable of calm, but because such fixes are only temporary and somewhat privileged, they're not, in the end, all that satisfying, she says. Our, la- our attempts would have made sense to monks in late antiquity in the early Middle Ages, because they also unplugged in their way as a first step in their campaign to concentrate on God and on their ethical obligations within God's cosmos. But that detachment was supposed to be permanent because they saw distraction as a structural feature of their societies. It was the world itself that had to be abandoned, not some select slice of it, which I think is intriguing again. So unplugging works if you do it for keeps, not if you necessarily do it just as I just did for four days. So how do we kind of change? You know, how, how can we settle into our own lives, which will evidently make us happier, more productive, more pleasing to God, closer to God, because we're actually in the moment where God lives, all that sort of stuff. What do we do? Now, obviously, we've talked about things here like, you know, meditation, mindfulness, centering prayer, etc. There's many things. The contemplative world is all over that. They would clearly, the contemplative world vastly agrees with the medieval monks. But um, I'm just going to walk you through one perspective on that question. Uh, from another book by this UCLA business professor named Cassie Holmes called Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. And isn't that interesting? Two different perspectives from academics saying the key is distraction. That's the key problem. One is a historian and one's a business professor, but they're both sort of on the same team here. I think that is that is sort of interesting. Um, so she talks about distraction in her world not just for the effects on things like attention, driving, productivity, but just on happiness, fundamental happiness, that we can't be happy as much as we would like to when we are distracted. So she says, everyone's mind wanders. This is her starting. She's data-driven, so lots of data here and things she talks about. Everyone's mind wanders often. In fact, people are not focused on what they're doing approximately half of the time, 47% to be exact. Moreover, it's not just sitting in a meeting that propels the mind somewhere else. It turns out that what people were doing didn't have a significant impact on whether or not they were paying attention. Except while in the throes of making love, people were just as likely to be distracted whether they were exercising, getting dressed, commuting, working, doing housework, relaxing, watching TV, reading a book, taking care of children, talking with a friend. And she says that her study's results were definitive, that people are less happy when they're distracted which she says is really pretty important if we're distracted maybe 50% of the time. Uh, She mentions a study by people named Killingsworth and Gilbert who say that whether people were focused on what they were doing had a bigger impact on whether they were happy than what they were doing. So this suggests that paying attention to your present activity, to doing that contemplative activity, could be a greater determinant of your happiness than what you're doing, which I think is interesting. Just being present is the main road to a happy life beyond all the things the monks said. Now, again, Holmes offers lots of tips, but I'm going to instead, for the remainder of our time here, talk mostly about a big paradigm, a perspective she's trying to offer, Um, and maybe we'll get into her tips in subsequent podcasts. So in terms of the big perspective, she uses what I've now discovered because I brought this up in some of our online groups, and many people know this thing, a really popular video called The Time Jar by a professor named Meyer K, K-A-Y, M-E-I-R, Meyer K, K-E-Y. I'll put the link in the uh, in the show notes. Um, let me just describe this video. I would play it, except it's mostly visual, so it wouldn't help if I just played it in audio form. So this professor walks into a classroom. He puts a plastic jar on his desk. He takes from his briefcase 
Uh, he takes out uh, a dozen golf balls. He pops them into the plastic jar, and it basically fills the jar. And he says to the students, is the jar full? And they all say yes. And then he holds up a finger. He pulls out of his briefcase a kind of a plastic cup full of pebbles. And he pours the pebbles into the jar, and they find their way in through the golf balls and settle in. And now it's got the golf ball and pebbles. And he says, hey, is the jar full now? And they say, all right, it's full now. And then he pulls up another finger, and he uh, pulls out a, a, a plastic cup full of sand. And he drops the sand into the jar, and now it's you know quite dense with crud and sand and pebbles and golf balls. And he says, is it full now? And they say, okay, yes. And then he holds up one more finger, and he pulls out a couple of beers, and he pops open one beer, and he pours it in over the top. And it, you know, at least a lot of the beer fits in. And it says, is it full now? And they say, yes, et cetera. And then he describes what he's done as a metaphor. And the metaphor is that the, the jar is the people's lives. But our whole lives are about how we fill that jar. And how we fill it is going to make a big difference into whether we're happy or we're unhappy. We get done what we want to get done or we don't. We see opportunities show up in our lives or they never show up in our lives, all dependent on what he's just shown us in metaphor form. And so he says the golf balls are the, the big things in our life, the things we actually value, the most important things. So it could be certainly family, relationships, passions that we have in our lives, those things. The pebbles, he says, are things we have to do. Go to work, you know, maintain a car, keep our house neat, you know, our apartment, whatever. Things that are our obligations and responsibilities that we do have to do, no doubt about it. Those are the pebbles. The sand is everything else. All the small stuff could be whatever. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he basically says, if you start, it all depends on how you fill the jar. If you start with the golf balls, life works. If you start with the sand, you can't put the golf balls in. The sands will force out the golf balls. And so you're going to find that if you start with sand, life goes bad. If you start with golf balls, life goes good. That's his basic point. And that's the paradigm then that Cassie Holmes settles us into in talking about how to beat distraction, the golf balls, pebbles, sand, and beer. Oh, by the way, a student then says, what's the beer represent? And he says, the beer represents that you're never too busy to have a beer with a friend. Um, so he's being cute, but it's a relational point. So um, Dr. Holmes starts talking about how do we think about sand in our lives? That that's the thing that's going to drive out happiness. Not that sand's not important, but sand has to come last is her point. So she says, well, screen time proves to be a major sand trap for many of us. What's intended to be a couple of minutes of scrolling here and there can all too swiftly turn into a significant number of weekly hours. So that'd be my newsfeed or TikTok for my kids or whatever. What's your sand, she asks. What unintentionally fills your hours such that you look back feeling pangs of regret, realizing that you wish you had spent that time better? She says, well, my email inbox is my major sand trap. Responding to email swallows my work hours and home hours alike. And what, one thing I think, at least in my brief memory of of uh, the Happier Hour book, is that it doesn't do a great job of looking at the pebbles, the things we actually do have to do. We do have to go to work. We do have to maintain a house. We do have to do whatever, um, pay our bills, et cetera. The things that we have to do, that, that intermediate range, she does spends, she's more helpful in talking about the golf balls and the sand, just as a warning. But she says, here's an example for her of keeping golf balls in mind. So she sits down and she writes out, what are the golf balls in my life? You know, what are the priorities? What are my passions? What are the things I value, et cetera, the most? And she says, I identified by doing that, that one commonality among my preferred activities was doing things with my kids, as opposed to doing, excuse me, as opposed to some of my less fun activities, which involved doing things for my kids. Knowing that I derive a great amount of happiness doing things with Leo and Lita is helpful, 
because I can use this as a filter for kid-related spending. For instance, when I was asked to serve on their school's gala committee, it was an easy and quick no. None of this work would have involved me spending any time with either Lita or Leo. However, when asked to serve as the room parent for Lita's class, I agreed, right? There's keeping the golf balls in mind. She says, you've got to be deliberate in how you spend your hours. You have to be proactive, not reactive in determining where your time goes. You do need to put in the golf balls first and commit to that time, regardless of whether you're in the mood or sand washes in. It's about what's fun and meaningful to you, what brings you joy. Now, something that she doesn't talk about, that in one of my group conversations about this, somebody very correctly brought up, that he'd done that in his life, but it sort of, it made life riskier because by not attending to, say, the pebbles as a primary primary thing, by, by really keeping the priorities in mind, I mean, he had to take risks. You know, he had to constantly be you know, doubling down on those golf balls staying so central. And, you know, he's not sure if that's going to turn out to be a good choice or not. And I can relate to that. We've talked a little bit about risk here every now and again, and I sometimes feel that way. So, amen, let's keep that in mind for sure. But now moving on, she talks about how happiness itself, these studies tell us, looks different when we're young versus when we've aged a little bit. I did not know that. That was news to me. So she says, when a 20-year-old and a 50-year-old express feeling happy, they're probably feeling quite different things. For younger people, extraordinary experiences, life milestones, once-in-a-lifetime vacations, cultural events generate greater happiness. However, for older people, ordinary experiences, simple shared moments with loved ones, tasty treats, noticing the beauty of nature, produce just as much happiness statistically as the more expensive and less accessible extraordinary ones. So that's that as we age, she says, we become more likely and better able to extract happiness from mundane moments in life. As we get older, we get better at savoring simple pleasures. Age doesn't only influence which experiences make us happiest. It also influences how we experience happiness. So in youth, we experience happiness more as excitement, a louder and more energized, positive feeling. Um, This is revealed, she points out in her studies, by people in their teens and 20s being significantly more likely to express excited happiness. And these are, I think, quotes from these young people. I feel happy, excited, like crazy happy. I feel so excited and happy. I feel happy and free and excited and so stressed, but so, so glad life is what it is. As we get older, however, we start experiencing happiness more as a calm peacefulness, a quieter, more serene and contented feeling. That's interesting and probably true, but it can help me feel like, do I have to take a trip to some exotic place to be happy or is happiness more about attending, right? It's where attention goes to whatever's happening in front of me and finding life and happiness in that. But then she also talks about how not acting on our golf balls causes more regret than mistakes we make in life. This is, again, looking at a younger person's perspective and an older person's perspective. So she says, in the short term, probably a younger person's perspective, actions generate more regret. But in the long term, inaction generates more regret, which is, again, this priorities question. So why is that? Well, she says, when we make a big mistake, our inclination to right some acute wrong explains why our regrets of action are thankfully short-lived. We've made a mistake, but now what can I do to make it better? Is it possible? On the other hand, regrets of inaction tend to be more innocuous. Often there isn't anything clear to fix. A team of researchers surveyed residents of a nursing home, and they found similar results. Looking back at the end of their lives, people's biggest regrets typically involve things they had not done and wish they had. Not spending enough time with family and friends, classic golf ball thing. Missing out on an educational opportunity. 
failing to seize the moment, missing a romantic opportunity in action. So again, that all boils down to prioritization, to this, this time jar analogy. So I don't know, where does that leave you hearing that the medieval monks thought our just drive to distract ourselves from living in this moment, that's the need we all have to do it, was the central weapon of the devil. That's, that's original sin. That's the fall. And that for them, they had to declare all-out war, you know, standing in snow until it's over their head and someone has to dig them out. Um, you know, some extreme and kind of charming and whatever stories. But that's the sin, they say. I don't know. What do you think about that? You know, my newsfeed story, does that tie into that? I think it probably does. And I think at moments when I've kind of made those sorts of choices, what I found is, oh, I think I am happier. I think I'm more productive. I don't seem to know any less about the news. So, huh, that's worth thinking about. And then for Dr. Holmes, um, from a practical modern day perspective, yes, distraction is the thing that will make us least happy. And she points out all these studies we just talked about that will prove that we're less happy and we're distracted and we're distracted about 50% of the time, no matter what the activity is. And we think we'll be happier if we find some happier activity and that's just proven false. The only thing that's going to make us happier, her research says, is learning how to attend to the moment we are in. That's it, says the study. And she has all her, for her, it's about prioritization, okay? The knowing, keeping, you know, your most important things as the more, most important things, et cetera. And, and if you do that, you're not going to have as many regrets at the end of your life, and you'll find happiness along the way. That's her pitch. What do you think? Um, well, let me close by um, giving you a picture uh, as someone who sometimes takes on writing projects of maybe my favorite look at distraction, one of my favorite looks at distraction. It's this 30-second clip from the movie Adaptation. I don't know if you saw that one. Starred Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep some time ago. It was written by the then red-hot screenwriter Charlie Kaufman, who'd been hired to adapt a New Yorker article called The Orchid Thief. But Kaufman, the actual writer, had such struggles writing it that instead he wrote a movie about a writer called Charlie Kaufman trying to write a movie about The Orchid Thief. So here's the internal monologue from Nicolas Cage playing Charlie Kaufman, sitting down to work on the script. To begin, to begin, how to start. I'm hungry. I should get coffee. Coffee would help me think. But I should write something first, then reward myself with coffee. Coffee and a muffin. Okay, so I need to establish the themes. Maybe banana nut. That's a good muffin. All right, that's all for today's podcast. And I'm thinking to myself, it's time for a snack. Nuts sound good, but maybe something with some sugar. I like sugar. See you next time. Mm.